Hi, everyone. Welcome to the August 13th, 2021 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Tassuti. Thank you so much for joining us. Secretary of State Jenna Griswold has ordered Mesa County to turn over its voting machines due to a security breach involving a non-employee. Additionally, the 21st Judicial District Attorney's Office, who oversees Mesa County, is investigating the situation, issuing a search warrant for the documents and for documents in the clerk and recorder's office. Meanwhile, Mesa County Clerk and Recorder Tina Peters was just a key figure, uh, is also a key figure in the investigation, but also recently spoke at a symposium hosted by none other but Mike Lindell. Patty Cahoon for Westward, we know that uh, Ms. Peters was not talking about pillow technology with uh, Mr. Lindell. Uh, this is just getting kind of crazy. What is your take? We actually don't know if she was talking about pillow technology because, as I said before, she was feather bedding the system, it sounds like. So on Monday, when Jenna Griswold sends an order to her saying, we're going to come, we're going to look at these machines, these passwords, which were from this May. They were not from the November election, but they were from this May. These passwords show up on a right-wing website. We're going to go look at them. She doesn't respond. She instead goes and joins Mike Lindell in South Dakota. Now, we're filming this at noon. For all we know, Mike Lindell may be in the White House right now with Donald Trump. He's the one who predicted it was reinstatement day. So we have the, we're running the risk of being very, very out of date. But assuming we're not, great week for Dominion Voting Systems, which happened to provide the voting machines that were at Mesa County, that the, whose passwords were taken. Their um, lawsuit against Mike Lindell and Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, that's able to, that uh, the judge let that stay in. The judge, another judge last week actually sanctioned two attorneys who had sued, class action suit on behalf of 160 million Americans in Colorado. The case, uh, they were looking for 160 billion because of all the election fraud magistrate judge threw that out because there was nothing in it except the kind of rumors that incite riots. So we have Colorado looking on one level very intelligent and smart and on the other level, you know, going to the mattresses over the (laughs) QAnon theories and Mike Lindell, the former crack addict who is now just a crack pot. <laughs> That's, uh, that was some great A, Patty Calhoun analysis right there. For, for all of our Colorado Inside Out fans, you know what kind of a special uh, episode this one is. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, Tina Peters claims that uh, Secretary of State Griswold is doing this uh, politically motivated, but uh, Tina Peters is not the only Republican uh, clerk in, or county clerk uh, recorder, so uh, it's hard to make that case. As you look at this issue, what stands out to you? Well, I, I think on initially you can say it's low credibility on on both sides. Just as an initial impression, her uh, consorting with with Mike Lindell, who has crazy and, and implausible and, and unsubstantiated conspiracy theories, and on the other hand, we've seen Secretary of State Griswold's behavior in office the the whole time, um, and. Uh, she hasn't lived up to the the high standards of of her, her many predecessors uh, of, of both parties, uh, but so you go for credibility for an outside source, and that's the the Colorado county clerks. Most county clerks in Colorado are Republican because most counties are, and the head of the county clerks association is uh, is Matt Crane, who was the former Republican county clerk of Arapahoe County. He says the county clerks uh, support Secretary Griswold's 
investigation. So, and, and I think overall, if you look all overall in all of Colorado politics, there are a few places you'll find more diligent, nonpartisan, sincere, just play it straight than in the county clerk's office. So, if, if they're if they think there's a problem, uh, they're almost certainly right. It's a good point, David. I think that you kind of who's calling shenanigans that they're, they are the closest thing we have to legitimate referees in our system in Colorado. Yeah. Joining us remotely, Natasha Gardner, freelance journalist and, of course, the author behind the Denver newsletter. Natasha, uh, this is probably not the way Colorado wanted to make national news this week, uh, but, you know, headlines are what they are. Uh, what was your take when you saw all the different headlines from Mesa County and beyond? Well, usually, well, usually if it's this time of the year and we hear about Mesa County, it's because of the peaches. And by the way, they're beautiful this year. And after missing them last year, it's nice to um, have peaches from Palisade back on the front range and across the country right now. You know, I think that, as always, we know our election system is so critically based on the idea of people feeling comfortable and safe and secure about our election system. Stories like this really disrupt that pattern, in particular because it, the Secretary of State was very clear from the beginning that this had no impact on the 2020 election. There's no impact on any ongoing election right now. But you still worry about the seeds of doubt that might might creep into people's minds about whether these systems work. I think it's important over the next couple of weeks as reporters look at this story to um, put that in context, to make sure that as we report on sort of the individual details of the story, that we're also reporting on the overall effectiveness of Colorado's, um, particularly Colorado's mail-in ballot system and um, how safe it, it is in effect, um, instead of focusing on this one very, um, what's becoming a very sensational story. Also join us right here at the table, Marianne Goodlin, Chief State House Reporter at Colorado Politics. Uh, Marianne, this is uh, the kind of issue that really is you know, great for Colorado because it incorporates everybody. You have uh, folks who are talking about it here uh, in the metro area. It is taking place in the Western Slope, and there's all parts around the nation that are being involved. What are the things that we need to know uh, from what you've seen so far? Well, first of all, I want to give a big uh, hats off to Charles Ashby of the Grand Junction Daily Sentinel, who has been doing wonderful, wonderful reporting on this. Um, I, I think there's some interesting things that are coming down the pike here. One of the things you have to remember is that Tina Peters was subject to a recall last year. Uh, there were, but they couldn't get the 12,000 plus signatures to get it on the ballot. And at the time, she complained that this was going to cost the county about $200,000 to do a recall for her. Can you imagine what the cost is going to be now that Jenna Griswold has decertified 41 voting machines and related equipment in Mesa County? Their options are two buy new machines, which could cost who knows how much. I'm, I'm hearing maybe even millions of dollars. Or that they have to hand count every ballot. And that, and that starts this year because those machines are immediately decertified. They're going to have to figure out some way of handling their election come this November. So I think we're, we're looking at some really big costs for Mesa County. And I know the Mesa County commissioners are supposed to be discussing that um, either today or sometime in the very, very near future. 
We move on. The Denver Post recently discovered a settlement agreement showing that the city of Denver paid out $1.1 million in back pay to two former Denver police officers who were fired for the beating of an unarmed man. Records show the men were also given thousands of dollars in exchange for a promise that they would not never work for DPD or any other Denver agency again. The settlement was a result of a 10-year-long court battle over their firing that ended with the Colorado Supreme Court refusing to review an earlier appeals court decision. David, we start with you on this one. Lots of legality stuff here, lots of confusion, lots of frustration. Uh, what, are we, uh, what stands out to you as the most important part? That the city people of Denver might consider revising their city charter and bringing it more in line with the, uh, the more functional systems in, in other counties. This, this grows out of two guys getting tossed out of a bar uh, and in under circumstances significant enough that the, the cops were called on that. And then it leads to uh, one of the officers beating up pretty severely uh, one of the people who, who got thrown out. The uh, police department's initial action was a, uh, a three-day suspension with, without pay. And then by the rules of the city charter, which is like the city constitution, and its civil service rules have been adopted by the voters of Denver, by those rules, that's the end of it. Later, more evidence comes to light showing that, that the, the officers were lying, saying that, that one of the people who got thrown out of the bar had, had punched them. That, was, that wasn't true. And so the, the city manager of safety wants to reopen the case and impose additional punishment. But the problem is the city charter says you can't do that. It's got a process. They say, oh, well, I've got the implicit power to reopen the case whenever I want, whenever I think it's reasonable. And the Colorado Court of Appeals quite rightly said no. The laws are that city charters are, are to be strictly construed and if we read in this implicit power uh, to undo discipline that's already been accepted and finished, then you, you'd be overturning the, the, the whole disciplinary system. So the officers, this case going on for 10 years, they get their 10 years of back pay, and by the, the city charter rules, they're also entitled to reinstatement as Denver police officers. So the city rightly spends uh, 50000 for one and I think uh, 15000 for the other to say, You'll never work as a Denver police officer again. That was the only optional part uh, of anything they did. And compared to having him back on the force, that was, that was money well spent. I suggest the Denver City voters consider making their county have the same good government as other count, almost every other county in the state other than Broomfield, where sheriffs are elected and run, they're the chief law enforcement officer, and they can just fire any employee at will. And if you look around the country, you will find the vast majority of police brutality problems happen when the law enforcement officers work for unelected uh, appointees. Natasha, we're going to you next on this one. Uh, this is extremely unpopular for everyone who's watching this. But again, you're looking to fine print in a city charter. It happened 10 years ago. It's not like uh, the, the people involved. There's, you, know, you can't protest the line in a city charter, I guess. It's harder. Uh, where do you think these frustrations go uh, for people who want to see some semblance of justice but know that just blew up kind of in everyone's faces? 
Well, I think this case is such a good reminder of how what might make the headlines one minute can really last into a story that develops over a decade or more in this case. Uh, I think that that's one of the things that's been um, extremely, I think, hard for communities to get their head around in recent years as we've dealt with questions of, um, of police violence, um, of, of victims that are, are trying to recover from police violence, is that these stories never, you know, the headlines might go away after a day or or two, but they really reverberate throughout our community. And then we're seeing that again in this in this case. I will say kudos for the Denver Post for following this up. I think in the last year, you know, we've all spent a fair amount of time reading COVID news, appropriately so. But this type of reporting is a reminder of the reason why we have good local news outlets, a reason that they do the work that they do, because they can keep bringing visibility to those little stories that may have gone off the front page, but still deserve the headlines, even if it is a decade later. Mary, I got to believe seeing the public reaction to this, that if this was a problem that happened in Denver City Charter, that a bunch of other cities are examining their charters to make sure it can't happen to them because uh, this is something they would want to fix. Do you think that might be the case? It, that's a good question. Um, it it kind of depends on what their rules are about hiring cops who have had problems in other jurisdictions. That's one of the things that, that I, I didn't see in what happened to these two police officers. Where are they now? But are they, are they also barred from being hired by any other police department or even a sheriff's department here in the state? I don't see that. Westward had a really great piece, Michael Roberts, about a year ago, that detailed 38 excessive force incidents in, within the Denver Police Department over a 15-year period. And I kind of have to wonder that maybe the time has come for somebody to put a call into the Justice Department to start looking at how much excessive force cases are being generated by the Denver Police Department, and maybe there's something that needs to happen uh, within, within that department. Well, Patty, speaking of Westward, you've done some extensive, uh, Westward has done some extensive reporting on this. Uh, there's a whole lot of details. What, uh, what do we need to know about what we've heard so far? Well, what was interesting is we talked to Michael D. Herrera's father today, and he is a veteran of the Pueblo Sheriff's Department. He's been on the force for 30 years, so it means 20 years ago, when his son was manhandled outside a bar. His son was on the phone calling his father to ask what he should do when the cops accused him of trying to hit him, he, I mean, hit them, he didn't. They knocked him down, they beat him up. It was a really bad beating. And as my, uh, Anthony de Herrera, his father said today, although I would never want my son beaten like this, you wish it had happened after the actions of the last year as people became more aware of racist police, policing. After as the Senate Bill 217 passed, because the odds are good, these cops would have been punished much more severely in the first place. So you wouldn't get into this double jeopardy issue. There would have been body cameras. I mean, they later found halo cameras and some cell phone cameras, but there were no body cam cameras on the cops. You would have had probably far stricter um, punishment by the city of Denver. So you wouldn't have gotten in this position because people are aware you do not beat up bar people who are not beating you up. 
An unlikely partnership is formed with the Denver City Council in an effort to remove the at-large council positions. Councilman Kevin Flynn joined Councilwoman Candy C. DeBaca in securing a 4-3 to three council vote to bring the proposal to the full council at the, for a final vote at the end of this month. Natasha, we start with you on this one. Uh, you know, this is, uh, it is an unlikely partnership with uh, council members Flynn and say DeBaca, but the whole idea of at-large members, I mean, it's kind of, we get into some pretty, uh, I'm going to say unique, but some detailed city policy here. Uh, is this going to, uh, do people just want to have representation for their district and call that good? Do you think that's the way it's going to go? Well, I think voters will have to make that decision. You know, this is a very interesting conversation, and I think the vote um, sort of allows that conversation to continue, and it might continue to pass the city council to get on the ballot and so the Denver voters could decide. A little bit of history. The at-large members were added in the 1960s. Um, there are a lot of arguments on, on both sides here for, for whether we should continue to have at-large members or not. Why in particular is coming up for discussion now is that we've reached a sort of perfect storm where the Two at-large members um, are term limited and so won't be up for re-election. But also we're at a redistricting moment because of population change. So this seems like a good time to have this conversation. Just really quickly, a few points on different sides. Uh, arguments for keeping at large include the fact that it allows people to have three con- um, three people representing them on the council, both the person in the district they live in and these two are at-large members. It allows at-large members to approach topics that might be more citywide, um, a topic that may not uh, be be very different in one part of the city and not in the other part of the city and take more of a global view. Arguments against it is that these uh, council members are now covering more and more and more constituents. And are they able to effectively represent them as they're stretched too thin? Could people, and do these districts deserve to have more direct representation from people who are very, very much based in their neighborhoods? All of this is going to play out. Um, probably, as I said, at the city council member and then probably on a larger scale in our communities. Um, And it may not only be resolved there. I I think that this is a type of thing that deserves a lot of attention, though. And that might be the biggest um, knock on the the situation right now is it's moving pretty quickly and it, it probably needs a little bit more time to unwind. Marianne, a four to three vote in committee is uh, pretty close (laughs) by one. It's not a guarantee to come out of full council. Do you think it will? Do you think it's going to get to voters? It's, I think that's a really, really good question, and I'm not 100% sure it will. Uh, there, there were some strong arguments against going to a, an all-representative um, form, and given the new numbers that came out of the, the census yesterday, Denver grew by 19.2%. That's going to make these districts a whole lot larger if they don't go to uh, splitting it up into 13 equal districts. Um, and, and that's just going and, and I believe Debbie Ortega had made that point uh, about how large these districts are getting. Well, it's it's just getting that much bigger. On the other hand, um, the other the issue that was raised that I found particularly interesting is who gets elected to Denver City Council. It's it's been majority white. Now, right now, you have five Latinas on the council, which is a record, I believe, but. Does that change the racial makeup of, of the council? Uh, and perhaps with 13 districts, you might get people who are more representative of their communities, particularly of minority communities. Patty, you've been uh, voting in Denver for quite a while. Do you think uh, Denver voters will get a chance to make their opinion known on this issue? 
I think it probably will make it to the November ballot. Um, Jalon Clark is also a sponsor of this, so it's not just the really delicious pairing of Candy C. DeBaca and Kevin Flynn, who sat at this table before. Very, very different politicians, but both think, in this case, the constituencies are just too large. You're getting, you're going from an average of maybe 50,000 to mid-60s, depending on what happens. The last time we redistricted Denver's population was only 600,000. Now it's 715,000. So you're going to have really big districts for people to handle. And one of the things you thought is, why not just keep two at large and add two more districts? But that is not going to happen at this point. Our only choices, it looks like, unless council really comes up with something else, will be get rid of the two at large, go to 13, or keep 11 districts and keep two at large seats. We're also going to be voting on moving the original municipal vote to April in order to not run into problems with the state and our runoff time. So we're going to be thinking about a lot of arcane things, and we will have to get out our, you know, our slide rules, our calculators, or any swing set operators that Mike Lindell can offer us to work on the math problems. A variety of mathematicians will be involved, clearly, figuring this out. Uh, David, we, we've had no problem as a roundtable to get into the details, the policy yeah. nitty-gritty, especially with the Denver uh, Charter. Uh, what do you think? Is this going to go to voters, and should it? I think they should at least have have the choice, and as Natasha said, there are, there are good arguments on on both sides. I, I'm, I would be a mistake, I think, to just expand the city council uh, because those people already cost the ta- taxpayers a lot in in salary and support, and and having two more mouths to feed uh, wouldn't be a good use of resources. Uh, one of the arguments for the at large is supposedly, as, as Natasha said, is oh, the at large people can focus more on issues of the city as a whole. Well, I, I would say look at the U.S. House of Representatives, where the average representative's district has over 700,000 people, and they're expected to do constituent service, you know, district work, those kind of things, and to think about national and international issues. Uh, our, our city council members, who only have actually one meeting a week of the council as a whole, and then maybe a committee meeting, it, it would seem they've got enough time to, to think about both. Well, we've been a little bit chatty today, so we're going to go right to our very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Cahoon, please start us off. We all know that it's been very difficult since you have giant corporate hedge funds and conglomerations buying local daily papers. But you will never find a better example of just how bad things have gotten than in Pueblo, where the Pueblo chieftain in their food section just did took a story from Gannett and their pre-printed food that was lauding hatch chilies. In Pueblo, those are fighting words, and the Pueblo chieftain has had to apologize. Pueblo politicians have been laughing about it. Let's remember, even when you might be owned by an out-of-state conglomerate, but somebody can still read the story and think, this really might not work in Pueblo. The chieftain would have received less criticism if they burned down City Hall in Pueblo (laughs) than they did. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) David, we go to you. The Colorado Rockies, not only a systemically racist organization, but a systemically stupid one, where they got themselves in a furor over a fan who had supposedly been yelling a racial epithet on the field at a player of the opposing team. And, of course, it got picked up by the Washington Post and CNN and the Associated Press. And then if you went back and listened to the tape, it was a grandfather who was plainly visible, turning away from the action, not looking at the opposing player, and calling out to the Rockies, moronic mascot, Dinger, yelling, Dinger, Dinger, Dinger. And uh, 
the Rockies' management is, is bad in so many ways, uh, and this just reinforces what we've already known. Natasha, we go to you for your disgrace of the week. Well, it's hard to follow up both of those things. In particular, I think people have looked for a new mascot for the Rockies for some time, so it'll be interesting to see if that continues. I, this isn't really someone to blame in particular, but the air around here has just been so bad. I know we're seeing some fresher air today. Hopefully that continues through the weekend so people can enjoy um, outside Colorado a little more. Marianne, we go to you. I want to go for something a little meaty, and I'm going to steal it from Patty. Um, what's going on in Afghanistan right now is absolutely horrific. Uh, it looks like the Taliban will be in control of the country in, in weeks, if not days. And it's unfortunate that after 20-plus years of the United States being at war there, that not only did we not take make the situation work out the way I think most administrations thought, but that we have not done a great job of taking care of the Afghan people who helped our American soldiers. And to double down on that disgrace, you have presidents of both parties who had 20 years. This is not on any one, uh, one president's watch. It's a good point. Time to, The happier part of what we do, time to say something nice about somebody. Patty. Well, as we've seen with Mike Lindell, truth is stranger than fiction. And we got another great episode today when the, the creators of South Park, Colorado hometown boys, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, announced in a Facebook Live with Governor Jared Polis that they have come to an agreement to buy Casa Bonita. This is not a joke. It's not an episode of South Park. It is Friday the 13th. But they swear it's true that if they can, because Casa Bonita is currently in bankruptcy court, they are going to take it over. Imagine Casa Bonita run by South Park. And now if those two could just go buy the Colorado Rockies, we know they have <laughs> enough money. They just made $900 million deal with Viacom. Let's get the Colorado Rockies, too. And we can just put Dinger in Black Bart's cave forever at Casa Bonita. <laughs> <laughs> a phenomenal episode. There's a variety of star episodes you have with Patty Cahoon's history at this program. This is one of them, Patty. Well done. David. University of Colorado professor Roger Pilkey, uh, who is a climatologist and has been uh, telling the public since the 1980s how important it is to take constructive steps to address the problem of global warming. Uh, but he, unlike many people who would, would agree with what I just said, uh, is also very intellectually honest and rigorous. And so in his testimony before the uh, uh, Senate last in uh, a few weeks ago, he explained how so much of what's being done in the supposed name of climate science, like the Ocasio-Cortez uh, Climate Corps program and many other things, have nothing to do with actually helping the environment and are just bad political programs, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing, uh, doing their fakery uh, in the supposed clause of uh, climate change. Natasha, we go to you next for your uh, Say Something Nice. As a journalist who loves a good data dump, when this new census information comes out, it's basically a holiday, um, especially when you get to the, that nine-year-out mark and you start using data and you just cringe every time because you know it's so low. It's really exciting to start looking at those numbers and digging into what it tells us about our populations. And kudos to the Census Bureau for being able to put it together in what was um, certainly unprecedented times. And Marianne. Um, I want to give a shout out to Fremont County Clerk Justin Grantham, who recently uh, came out against the 
uh, most notable pu- public figure in, in his area, which is State Representative Ron Hanks, complaining about Hank- how Hanks has made life difficult for the county clerks in his district, including death threats against him, against the county clerk, I believe, in Chafee County as well. Um, it, that takes courage in this very po- uh, polarized environment that we live in. So kudos to Clerk Grantham, who is the son of former Senate President Kevin Grantham. And I have to add two very quick uh, thank yous and say something nice. One to Tim Jackson, our good friend at the Colorado Automobile Dealers Association, hooked us up with some frozen treats last uh, last week for the crew and everybody here at Colorado Inside Out. Thank you, Tim. And, of course, a new uh, outlet carrying Colorado Inside Out, KVNF Mountain Grown Community Radio, public radio in Paonia, Colorado, broadcasting throughout the Western Slope, now carrying Colorado Inside Out every week. Thank you for joining our expanding network of affiliates. For everybody here at Colorado Inside Out and PB, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for watching. Good night.